to be situationally aware what is happening in our communities and societies because you know institutions and our organizations universities hospitals we are microcosm of our societies and communities universities and hospitals are not building they're made of people who are coming from societies and communities so how can we role model those behaviors in our policies in our practices and so that we are representative of our patient population respectful that's the whole concept of cultural safety welcome to specialty matters This podcast is brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and I'm your host, Dr. Guylaine Lefebvre. I'm an executive director at the Royal College. Today, we're going to be talking about a critical topic in education space, the need to embrace diversity for our learners and peers and to create an inclusive environment. And even more than this, our guest will actually shed light on a topic that's close to my heart uh, in my career as a surgeon. How do we enable the safe use of religious attire for healthcare workers, learners, and volunteers in hospital areas with sterile procedures? It's a privilege to introduce and welcome my guest, Dr. Umbran Najib. Thank you, Ghislaine, for having me here. It's um, an honor and privilege for me as well. Dr. Najib, uh, if uh, you don't mind, we'll, uh, we'll be informal through this and uh, I'll call you Umbran. You're a mother, an academic physician, educator, staff internist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. And although I haven't had a chance to sample, I hear you are an excellent cook. As an educator, your scholarly focus is on health professions education with specific focus on curriculum design, program development, faculty development, and mentorship. But really specifically, you have an expertise in, and have dedicated your work to the transition and integration of internationally educated health professionals into both their training and their working environments. You were the equity lead at U of T, and congratulations. I hear you were recently appointed the vice chair of culture and inclusion in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Obviously, equity, diversity, inclusion, and allyship are very important in everything that you do. You're joining us from Toronto today. Would you like to start with a land acknowledgement for where you are presently? Thank you so much, Ghislaine, for such a nice introduction. And maybe one day when we meet in person, you can sample my cooking. Oh, I'd love that. So I would like to share the land acknowledgement on the land where I am right now in Toronto. We recognize that many Indigenous nations have long-standing relationships with the land upon which the work of the University of Toronto's Department of Medicine is conducted. We acknowledge our presence on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississauga of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Bandad people. Today, this land is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Meti peoples, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to live, work, and gather on these territories. When I was writing this land acknowledgement or rewriting or revising it for our Department of Medicine, I added a couple of statements which I think are very important. And I always think that land acknowledgements are only a starting point for a larger conversation. More acts of restitution and transformation are needed to address underlying inequities and blatant discrimination in the distribution of resources between Canada's first people and settlers. 
Thanks, Umbrun. Uh, very wise words. I, I am presently in Ottawa, the uh, unceded territory of Algonquin Anishinaabe people. And I also take the opportunity to acknowledge the inequities that continue today for in- Indigenous people as patients and as providers. And I'm committed to unlearn and to continue learning. I have to say through this podcast series and our guests, I, I continue learning with my interactions as we navigate to really build a better future altogether. So getting to the topic at hand, I let me share with you that I chaired a fellowship in gynae surgery when I was in Toronto at St. Mike's. And the last fellow before I left that role came to us from Qatar. We were really helping her advance her expertise. She was going to go back to Qatar and actually lead an entire department. She wore a hijab, and and this was in 2014-15. We actually didn't have policies. (laughs) She helped us identify and lead a way forward so that her head covering was not going to be an impediment to her training and her, her work as a surgeon, right? I can't imagine now restricting her access to all of those sterile environments that she needed to be functioning in. For anyone who knows the OR setting, it's really difficult to maneuver change. They're multidisciplinary teams, and of course, everyone wants to do the right thing. So I, I'm just thrilled to know that you have now been in a position where you can help us make a difference. Could we perhaps start with the standards document that you co-authored on the very topic of religious attire accommodations in surgical spaces, if you wouldn't mind, and perhaps just even reading the first paragraph of the standards document? I think it concisely sets the stage for our discussion. So this first paragraph, which I'm reading right now, is from the standards document. The document, as I was sharing before, has been approved by Toronto Academic Health Sciences Network and is being implemented across its affiliated hospital. The right to be treated equally based on a creed and to hold and practice creed beliefs of once choosing free are fundamental human rights in Ontario, protected by the Ontario Human Rights Code and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. Based on the code, employers and service providers have the legal duty to accommodate sincerely held religious and spiritual beliefs up to the point of undue hardship, for example, health and safety factors of cost. If you allow me to read the second paragraph, Ghislaine, I know you asked me just to read the first, but I do want to read the second paragraph as well. The purpose of this document is to set out and harmonize among Toronto Academic Health Sciences Network hospitals, standards and shared expectations related to clothing worn by religious observant individuals acting in hospital areas with sterile procedures, such as operating rooms. We recognize that religiously observant individuals have unique rights and responsibilities when it comes to upholding aseptic practices while also staying true to their respective faiths. This document is intended to support the upholding of these rights and responsibilities while ensuring safety of the healthcare workers and appropriate infection prevention and control practices. Thank you. It seems so clear and I would even dare say relatively evident. Shouldn't we be making sure that everyone's treated fairly? So this guideline now in Toronto has set the stage for having principles by which people are comfortable in every part of an operating room setting, for example, people are comfortable with what we should be doing. What happened before? 
So you're right. Sometimes the things which we do and we make guidelines or standards document, they're so obvious. And the question is, well, why were we not doing it before? So just to add a little bit of context, this document, we have been trying to develop and accommodate and get approval for almost a decade. Thanks to our medical student, Dr. Nabiha Islam, who is now a practicing internist in one of the community teaching hospitals in Ontario. She was a medical student at the time, and she shared her experiences as a hijab-bearing learner when going for different surgical rotations and the challenges they were facing. And that's when brought to the attention of the university, the conversation started, and various leaders who were experts in advocating for change worked along with Nabiha to make some accommodations and make some standards or guidelines on how can we practice inclusive care, inclusive practices in our learning spaces. And our learning spaces are clinical spaces, like how lucky we are as educators and teachers in medical education that our learning spaces are in front of our patients, in the operating room, in other sterile spaces. So that was the conversation starter. And that led to multiple uh, surveys and data collection from uh, various other group of learners. So the issue was brought to attention by hijab-wearing learners. There's no doubt about that. However, when I took over this role as the senior advisor on Islamophobia in the Office of Inclusion and Diversity at University of Toronto, it became very apparent that we have a very diverse group of learners. What about Sikh learners who wear turban? What about Jewish women who wear tikal? So these are the needs which are shared and learners, they need to come to their workplaces, academic and learning spaces, acknowledging their social identity. And for many of us, our faith and those of us who choose to express their faith with their attire or anything like that, we need to acknowledge that. We need to create those inclusive spaces where we have sense of belonging. So learners, staff, physicians, anyone who are coming to these spaces for delivering patient care, they should be comfortable acknowledging these identities. And there has been instances of mistreatment where learners were told you cannot come to the operating room, which is a wrong statement. I mean, there are many countries in the world where hijab-wearing surgeons are delivering healthcare. Uh, they can be gynecologists, they can be other group of surgeons as well, and they are delivering patient care. So in North America, and I would say in Canada specifically, and if we are taking Toronto as an example, which is the most diverse city, that is the point when we started the conversation. And for me, I think the basic principle is in order to create inclusive spaces, we need to role model inclusive behaviors and develop policies and procedures and practices, which helps us and facilitate us in role modeling these behaviors as well. So as you said, it's so obvious. And um, why shouldn't a learner who wears a hijab or a tikhal or a turban who wants to explore surgery or surgical related specialities as a career option um, and I'm purposefully choosing medical students as an example here. Why shouldn't they be given an opportunity to do an elective, to do a shadowing or an observership? Why shouldn't they enhance their learning and make more informed decisions and learn more by being comfortable in who they are? It also dawns on me that Many of our patients also wear religious attire. And so 
by depriving practitioners from being fully themselves at work, there's an element of that that seems to me is discriminatory to our patients as well. And I think you're totally correct, because as I was saying before, our learning spaces, for those of us who are academic physicians or uh, clinicians, all of us are clinicians, we work with our peers who may be of diverse social identities, but the most important role we do is deliver patient care. So how can we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion and delivering person-centered care or patient-centered care when we don't acknowledge the diversity or the diverse patient population which we are serving right now? And Canada is a country of uninvited settlers. I mean, there has been different phases on who is coming to Canada. But in the last 10 to 20 years, we have seen large numbers of diverse populations coming to Canada for a variety of reasons. I mean, if you have to go back in the recent past, think about Syrian refugees. Think about people coming from Afghanistan. Now, let's think about people coming from Ukraine. So Canada always had an open heart, and we always had people coming from diverse backgrounds, and we were helping them integrate, but acknowledging their uh, unique identities and unique cultures as well. So this needs to be reflective in our clinical spaces and in our uh, educational spaces. While we're on topic of patients, for example, I teach a lot and around various clinical and non-clinical topics. Like how do we examine lymph nodes in a hijab-wearing learner whose neck is covered? It's a simple thing. Huh? We teach lymph, and lymph node examination to medical students all the time in their pre-clerkship years and clerkship years. So how to go about that? It's the same thing as we were teaching our learners how to take history around sexual practices and orientation, how to examine private parts of our patients and uh, who to have with you at the moment. So I think that teaching has always been there, but that teaching needs to evolve. We need to be situationally aware what is happening in our communities and societies because, you know, institutions and our organizations universities, hospitals, we are microcosm of our societies and communities. Universities and hospitals are not building, they're made of people who are coming from societies and communities. So how can we role model those behaviors in our policies, in our practices, and so that we are representative of our patient population, respectful? That's the whole concept of cultural safety. We don't use the term cultural competency anymore because nobody can be culturally competent. There's so many cultures we are seeing. How can we be respectful? How can we be culturally safe? If we don't know anything, how can we ask them? Oh, I've got a hijab-wearing learner in my OR today. So how do we have to incorporate practices from orientation? Or how do we accommodate that? Where should they change? Where should they put their scrubs on? Where should they remove their scrubs? Do they need some privacy? There are certain religious practices in various religions which requires modesty. And if we are using the example of operating rooms, women feel uncomfortable exposing their arms, but they have to because patient safety and healthcare safety is the most important. So how can they do that? And just showing that sensitivity and respect and humility will help us being a role model where a learner will say, oh, I want to be like them. They are so respectful to me. I would like to work in this organization. They are so inclusive. So every journey starts with the first uh, step. And I think the EDI, any kind of EDI work is, is a marathon. And it's slow and steady. It's, it's a change. Change even in positive direction is very anxiety provoking. So we need to build a lot of consensus 
when we talk about inclusion, we have to, as I said many times before, role model inclusion practices as well. Reaching out to multiple groups, as you said, operating room is managed by multiple group of people. It's not just the doctor there or a surgeon there, our nurses, our OR technicians, people who clean our ORs, environmental staff, uh, so many other allied healthcare professionals and learners and volunteers, other staff members. So how do we do this consensus building, gather information so that this standards document, which I've built, it took me a year, despite having an initial document, which was started by a couple of my colleagues, but to build that consensus, to make that language, what is our infection prevention and control? Because that's the most important thing in care delivery, that the care doesn't get compromised for our patients and also for our staff as well. You do have the privilege of working in Toronto, which has been identified by some as the most diverse city in the world. What would be some of your recommendations for the rest of the country where we are exposed to this diversity, but maybe not at the same level? So uh, I guess the two questions are, how do I ask politely? How do I give a voice to the learner or the person in an environment to whom I may have a, uh, a responsibility to? And how do I make sure that I let that person have a voice to teach me, really? I think I think you're right. We are lucky in Toronto that we see so many cultures and we are exposed to so many diverse learners and patients. But if we are in a part of Canada where there's not that much diversity and we are getting a learner who is different based on their social identities, I think just showing humility and asking question. You know, we never had a hijab-wearing learner in our surgical rotation before. And I was looking at our policies and procedures and orientation documents uh, so I'm just wondering, or we are just wondering how to best meet your educational and learning needs. And then taking that first step, I think what happens is many times learners and staff and faculty members who are starting their journey, maybe in a new hospital or in a new space, they are left to figure out what to do. So this should not happen. I think this common human courtesy, like instead of learner asking us, we should take the first step. How can we help you? Oh, just like we do orientation for any kind of educational activity. This is the washroom or this is the cafeteria or here you go for coffee. So those simple things, like as we acknowledge all those needs as well, what about other needs which we can help accommodate? And acknowledging the limitations yourself as well. We have never had a tichel wearing learner or we have never had a turban wearing staff before. We want you to have an experience. We want you to learn to the best of your abilities. That's the spirit of culture change, like asking questions and being the first one, which I think is the harder part. And once we have taken that step and once we have inquired about it, I think the journey begins. Now, from an organizational perspective, I know every organization, every university is different, but there has to be some means where learners, staff, residents can provide some feedback in an anonymous manner as well. So again, I, it seems like I'm bragging about the University of Toronto, but we have a voice of learner survey happening, which provided us a lot of useful information, which added to what our learners were saying informally, that we are facing challenges. And you know, we are scientific people. So when we get data in front of us, oh, that many of our learners are saying this. 
So how can we go about making curricular changes? How can we go about making procedure changes? So that data gathering, I think that's the responsibility at an organization or at a program level to ascertain how can we gather more data and then what questions to ask. Like not using the same surveys. If I'm or anyone is going to use an EDI lens, how can we modify those questions? Are these questions being asked in a culturally safe manner, culturally sensitive manner? And then at a personal level, if I'm representing someone in an institute or in an OR or in an endoscopy suite, like we need to be sterile there or a bronchoscopy suite, how can I create that welcoming environment where everybody feels included, where they have sense of belonging? And now in EDI language, we're using another term called flourishing. We want our peers, our learners to flourish. And how can we flourish if I'm uncomfortable even openly acknowledging Maybe I cannot be a surgeon because I wear hijab. I don't see anyone, anyone like me. So I think these are the first few initial strategies, but it does take time. It does take patience. And the uh, concept that overall keeping our sense of humility, we will inevitably make mistakes. Let's look at those mistakes as an opportunity to continuously improve and accept that none of us will be perfect in this space. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need the surveys if everyone was comfortable saying, you know what just happened there made me really uncomfortable. And we could say, thank you, let's address it together so it doesn't happen again, right? Your paper or policy, uh, Standards for Religious Attire for Healthcare Workers, Learners and Volunteers in Hospital Areas with Sterile Procedures, you uh, co-authored this and released it in May of last year. How has it been received in Toronto? Is it available widely? How do our listeners get access to this so that they have uh, a foundation? So um, the document is now formally approved by Toronto Academic Health Sciences Network. We call it TASN, CEO table. Um, So this is an organization which all the 15 teaching hospitals are affiliated with. So the CEO table has approved it. And now the implementation process starts. Various hospitals has already revised their policies and procedures. So I was a little bit more... um, flexible with the language. I call this a standards document to guide hospitals to make their own policies and procedures. At this time, I know that a couple of hospitals has already changed their policies and procedures based on the standards. There's an oversight committee now or oversight group at TASN who is looking into it. How can we implement it? Because, you know, every hospital will be unique. That's another piece of humility and acknowledging that context in each organization or hospital will be slightly different. As long as the principles are adopted, I think that's an important thing. Document is openly available on TASN website. I'm happy to share the link uh, as well. And, and I was thinking about something you said, and it just came to my mind. We were just discussing in the beginning how to pronounce each other names. And when we don't know how to pronounce each other name, we say, oh, I'm sorry, let, let me pronounce it properly. Is that correct now? So the same simple humility, the same simple strategy can be applied to anything we do in our education with education leadership hat or as a change maker, trying, acknowledging a mistake, and then making it better. 
Thank you for this. A lot of pearls in our conversation today. And I am so grateful for the work uh, of both you and your team on getting us to a place where we could actually have standards to to help us advance with some level of, of harmonization. A couple of takeaways that I take from our conversation, I, the most important one is it really falls on us to create spaces where individuals don't have to choose between their faith and their profession. <laughs> Treating our providers equitably is really the key to, to inclusion for our patients. Um, the role modeling that we can exhibit with acceptance and adaptability, we will make mistakes Don't be afraid to ask and to learn and to continuously get better. Dr. Najib, let's uh, leave our listeners with a tangible action, if you will, um, something that they can act on as a result of listening to this episode and any final thoughts or call to action that you would like to put forward that we haven't discussed already. Thank you so much for asking me to be here to share this work. And if I may ask the Royal College to take the lead on it, and how can we make this, for the lack of the better word, a requirement, or maybe at least to have some thought process around, is there a policy? Is there a standard documents to accommodate uh, the religious needs of our diverse group of learners? Because when I was researching or doing literature review, I found that UK is way ahead of us. They have this policy and document for the whole hospitals in UK. I even found a multicultural guide from United States as well. So various certification bodies and educational organizations who oversee educational certification, they have already started it. In Australia, some work is happening. So let's not fall behind. Uh, let's catch up and be be a change maker as a national certification body. That was one thing. The other thing is, I think we need to don't work in silos. How can we collaborate? So if some university or some organization or another part of Canada has done something and it makes sense to adopt, how can we collaborate? How can we share knowledge? Knowledge always get enhanced by sharing. Instead of reinventing the wheel, how can we share? How can we build on the work which is already there? And I think the third thing is, um, I mean, be kind. We know we've gone through a bit of a pandemic, (laughs) still going through it. We don't know what is going on in other people's lives. So be kind, be compassionate, be empathetic, and be a change maker. Start the change making journey with acknowledging my own limitations, my own learnings, which are not there. And it's a collective journey. Thank you, Umbran. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I can tell you with no hesitation that if I'd had access to a standard document six, seven years ago, I would have been a better leader for my diverse trainees. And so I'm definitely on your page. Uh, the Royal College has permission to amplify the good work of the fellows who make up the Royal College. And so we'll definitely be keen to help in any way we can to amplify the work of your team and the very strong principles for equity, diversity and inclusion that should basically guide everything that all of us do now. Uh, Thank you to our listeners for tuning into Specialty Matters. Please share this episode, subscribe, give us a rating or write a review. 
Write to us at fellowshipaffairs at royalcollege.ca with suggestions or feedback on this podcast. You can also tune in and share the Royal College's podcast for medical students called Café de Spécialité and Specialty Café. Until next time, I'm Guylaine Lefebvre. Goodbye.